Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Great pleasure to have Peter Hooper here with us in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. He's the chief economist he's, he's uh, at Deutsche Bank. He's, he's a, a Hall, Hall of Famer. Famer. Yeah, he's exactly. a Hall of Famer. Back-to-back back. <laughs> Hall of Fame. That was great yesterday with Jim Palmer, Loved wasn't it. it? You, yeah, totally unexpected I, I look, and uh, really yeah, nice to talk to him. It was just wonderful. Good morning to everyone. 99.1 FM, Baltimore, Washington. What an honor to speak to Jim Palmer. I went back and looked at his statistics. Wow. Yeah. It was amazing what he did in the early 70s. Now friend of Doug Cass. We'll have to look into that. Yeah, it's that amazing happened. what Peter Hooper did in the early 70s, too. <laughs> Ask about the batting average later. Uh, Peter Hoover, let's start with what we learned yesterday. Uh, we got these new economic forecasts. My sense is not a whole lot uh, changed. What did you learn from them yesterday and square them with what we've heard from the, the White House, their, their expectations for economic growth? Well, I, the, the, David, the, the Fed is still very much in a wait-and-see mode, um, as, as the chair noted in the press conference. Uh, they cannot uh, assume what's going to be happening on fiscal policy or – uh, the extent to which animal spirits, which have been lifted impressively, are going to be sustained and lift uh, actual spending. Um, so they've, they've pretty much sat on their forecast of 2.1% uh, growth for the next year or two. Um, they did uh, edge up the inflation forecast ever so slightly. Uh, and I think an important change in the wording of the statement that accompanied these forecasts is uh, uh, that they're, they're no longer forecasting inflation to rise to its target, but saying it will remain where it is very mm. near its target. So in, a, in essence, well, this was, this was headline inflation. It's been driven up by uh, the rise in oil prices over the last year. Um, it, it is a, a, an acknowledgement that they're, you know, they're, they've achieved their objective on employment. Uh, they're, they're at Nehru, essentially, on unemployment. Uh, and they're very close on inflation now, too. The so. target that they say or they emphasize is symmetric. How important is that adjectival modifier in the statement? Well, that, that, that's very, it is quite important. Uh, so, saying symmetrics says, okay, we, we recognize we are. We, we may be uh, currently even slightly above target on some of the measures. Uh, the, the, the headline CPI year over year running at 2.7%. Uh, their, their target for PCE is 2%. Uh, translate that to CPI, and it would be something in the na neighborhood of 2.3, 2.4. So uh, uh, symmetry is, is basically acknowledging that, uh, okay, there are, you know, we, we've been uh, aiming to get inflation back up from the low side. Uh, uh, we're going to accept a little bit of an overshoot on the, on the upside as well, but uh, eventually we do expect the inflation to get back to target. What did we hear from the Fed chair yesterday about the, the soft data? Going into this meeting, sentiment seemed so important. How did she address that, and how did she address how that dovetails with the hard data? Well, I mean, I, I, I think... She, she got into a discussion of uh, GDP being uh, uh, volatile. Um, uh, no, no question that there is a, a lot of movement in the data. 
And there's a lot of disagreement about where things lie right now. Um, the, the Atlanta Fed, uh, I think you're, uh, there was a question raised about the low first quarter growth. The Atlanta Fed uh, sees it at one less than 1% currently. <clears throat> Uh, the New York Fed sees uh, growth uh, in the current quarter at uh, more than 3%. Uh, they are driven more by the soft data. Uh, they see the survey data, the ISMs, et cetera, as, as being uh, quite important in, in uh, determining where we are currently. But, uh, you know, uh, on that point, I was interested that the statement removed reference to uh, the, the sentiment, uh, consumer and business sentiment. Um, maybe a slight de-emphasis on that, uh, and maybe there had been some expectation that perhaps they would raise their growth forecast because of the very good soft, right, soft right, data. Right, right. Uh, but I think they're de-emphasizing it a little bit for the time being. One of the hallmarks of Deutsche Bank research is a, a healthy understanding of history that comes from you and from Dr. Folkert's Landau as well. What is the economic history of this balance between soft data use and hard data use? You know, it, uh, we're seeing an unusual split. Generally, soft data is used as, a, as an advance indicator that informs a forecast. It does have uh, uh, some impact. Um, Agreed. And, uh, no, no question. But we're seeing an, an unusually wide split between Agreed. the hard data and soft data right now. So, I mean, I, I actually went back yesterday to take a look to see uh, what'd you learn? What, what's the last time we've seen this kind of gap between the ISM uh, and, and GDP. Um, it, you know, I, I, I can't identify a time when it's been this Can large. I steal that chart from you? <laughs> I'm going to be making that chart up on it. He was gracious Eisner, enough to ask, Eisner which Amper's is going to be running an well, ad, and if, I'm if, going to be if, making if, a nerd chart up If here. you believe the correlation between GDP and the ISM, the combined ISM, uh, we are at 3% plus growth. The only correlation I believe in now is Purdue and UNC there basketball. Go. Okay. <laughs> I've got a bracket due in 12 hours. Continue, Mr. Gura. Peter, help me understand something. Going back to the spring, ahead of the Brexit vote, uh, all indications were the Fed didn't want to raise rates because of the uncertainty surrounding that particular vote. Help me with the timing here. The Fed raising rates as we look ahead to the French election. Of course, we had the Dutch election yesterday, but the, the, the more important uh, consensus is election, the French election coming up here. Why is their mood toward that election different than the one that we had in, in, in June? Well, it's still a ways off. Um, it's it's not a, a an issue, immediate issue for the markets as as the Brexit vote uh, was, uh, and I think uh, at this point the uh, the uh, risks around that uh, election have, have are seen to have been uh, receding. Certainly, yesterday's outcome in in the Netherlands helps. I think, um, uh, although there is some question about. Uh, Right-wing populism versus left-wing populism, um, uh, and and how how close we are there. But but um, I think the, the the main factor is, you know, in fact, David, it might have been the possibility of uh, of uh, uncertainty around the French election is something that would have made it more difficult to to raise rates uh, as that election drew closer. So it might have been a factor, very slightly, in in the decision to go, to move yesterday. But I think the, the Fed is being driven here by the progression uh, in the real economy. Uh, the unemployment rate has continued to drift lower. We are now at uh, uh, Nehru, uh, they, although estimates of Nehru continue to decline a bit. Um, and we are, even more importantly, uh, very close on, on inflation. 
mm. core, core inflation several tenths away. So um, I, I think that's that's the main the, the main factor is uh, uh, developments developments in the U.S. economy have, have been moving along, making it easier for the Fed to move uh, in the face of uncertainties abroad. We're going to come back, and I know Tom wants to ask you about that paper that you authored with Michael Faroli at Allen, presented uh, before the vice chairman of the Federal Reserve a couple weeks ago here in, in New York. But let me ask you quickly just about the dots and the movement that we saw in the dots uh, yesterday. Did you expect we'd see uh, more? There seems to be this disconnect between the bond market and what we uh, saw there. Uh, what were your expectations going into the meeting? Uh, I thought that they would stay at three for 2017. <clears throat> Uh, I thought there was a possibility we might get a, a move up in the in the median dot for 2018 or 2019. We did get a slight move for 2019. I think the market is maybe under uh, appreciating uh, the importance of the the move in the average dot, if you will. Mm. Uh, I mean, you did have four uh, four people move up uh, uh, in in from two to three. Uh, rate hikes this year. You 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 uh, you had uh, for 2018 and 2019 an increase in the average dot of almost 10 basis points. Um, that, that's something. It, it's saying that uh, there ha- well, there was some movement. Uh, it wasn't a a a, uh, a, a a total freeze on on the dots. Well, we're going to go away here with Dr. Hooper. I'm going to make an incredible chart, which Bloomberg Radio will see first before anybody else. <laughs> It's amazing how we do that. Put it out on Charts Twitter. Charts on the radio, on Twitter. Okay. started, but uh, wonderful to have Peter Hooper with us with Deutsche Bank. It is definitive on the chairman with us, Sebastian uh, Malaby, in his wonderful book, The Man who knew. Um, you have a wonderful knowledge of continental Europe and the heritage of your family with a tilt from England towards Germany. Chancellor Merkel has decided not to go to Florida. She will not go play golf in Florida. She will not have a steak dinner in Florida with members of the club. I guess that's what you do with the winter uh, White House. How is the chancellor doing? I would assume it's her best morning in ages off of the Netherlands election. The Netherlands election is an encouraging thing. Um, It's interesting that the polls actually, in this case, overestimated the strength of the populist uh, Heert Wilders. It was always the case that the Netherlands was not going to go and be governed by the populists because even on the kind of more pessimistic projections, the establishment parties were still going to have kind of 80% of the seats in the parliament. So, but, but, but Wilders did even less well than projected, and that's got to be a good thing for anybody in the center of European politics. You, you see uh, Angela Merkel and others uh, applauding the, the way the results turned out uh, last night. What does it portend for what happens in, in France? Can you draw a line between those two elections? Well, I think it just remi- reminds us that, that we don't always get surprised in a populist direction, that the Brexit vote and the Trump phenomenon, you know, there can be counterexamples. I think in France, what, you know, seems pretty clear is that Marine Le Pen uh, the right-wing nationalist gets through the first round clearly, and in the second round, or in that round, when there's the runoff, uh, the polls are pretty much solid in predicting that she will lose. So, um, assuming it's Macron, Emmanuel Macron, the centrist, um, France ends up actually in a more pro-European, pro-market, reformist, promising kind of place than it was before. So that's actually could turn out quite well. How problematic is this for uh, Paris, for France, trying to woo companies to to move their operations to France? The possibility here of a Le Pen 
victory and, and what that might mean for stability, for uh, France continuing to be a part of the European Union if, in fact, Le Pen wins and there's a, a referendum? Well, I think if Le Pen did win, then trying to attract companies to France would be impossible. Fool's errand, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, the, the idea that France would leave the euro, rip up every single commercial contract which is denominated in euros, and go through some traumatic referendum process, uh, I think that would just terrify people. The reality is that the way the French law and the French constitution is written, it would be very tough for Marine Le Pen to get that done because she would not have a majority in the parliament or the National Assembly, which is what she would need. Um, so I'm not sure, despite her threats, that she would do it. But I think the just the discussion around it would be freezing uh, for an investment. Help us with uh, Le Fair Hog, the Charlotte Hog uh, uh, incident from, from this week. We watched this, the headlines crossed here on the Bloomberg, and uh, being here, don't have a sense of the, the import of that, a, a great sense of the import of that. Give us a, a, a feel for uh, the role that she was playing at the BOE. Uh, as we await the right decision from from the the governors here in just a moment, and and uh, how significant it is that she tendered her resignation, that it was it was accepted. Well, there is a lot of turbulence right now in the Bank of England, uh, kind of in the in the policy setting committee, because you've had uh, Charlotte Hogg, as you say, resigning, one of the deputy governors. Another one um, is about to leave to go and be the head of the London School of Economics. Uh, Kristen Forbes of MIT, who was an external member of the Monetary Policy Committee is announcing that she's going to be gone in the summer. So there's quite a lot of churn. But I would say that the thing about the Bank of England, it's become quite centralized around the figure of Mark Carney, mm. who is a very dominant person and who, who dominates, I think, media mm. attention. And he's not going anywhere for now. In the time that we've got left, I, this is why we have Sebastian on, David. He says things so elegantly <laughs> that I wouldn't... <laughs> this is an economic phrase from Sebastian Malaby. Chair Yellen should spill some apples. That's a beautiful <laughs> phrase. I would never. That, that's, that sounds British to me. Did did Chair Yellen spill some apples yesterday? No, the opposite. That's my, that's my worry. You know, she 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 raises rates. It's been beautifully signaled before. Everybody's calm. The market goes up. Both the bond market and the equities go up. And so people are saying, what a beautifully executed thing. She's tight. <laughs> she's tightening. She's tightening, but there's no pain. And I'm saying that's not good. You actually need to. What make, does she need to do? I think she should have just shocked people by hiking by 50 basis points, not 25. Done on Arthur Burns. I mean, back, David, you're too young to remember this. There's a point where they actually moved yields. Well, I think, you know, you go back to 1994. You don't have to go back to the 70s and Arthur Burns, but 94, Greenspan tightened sometimes 25 basis points, sometimes 50, sometimes mm -hmm. 75. And a lot of leveraged people got blown up. And that's good occasionally because you've got to teach people, remind people that leverage comes with a risk. Let's add in here the politics of, of your work. Is all of this tepid mumbo-jumbo and the ability better not spill. This is from Sebastian Malaby's Washington Post column of a few days ago. We better not spill some apples. Is, is that leading to a great distortion, which is ultimately leading to the upset that we see in Europe in our greater politics as well? Look, I think the, the big picture here, Tom, is that in the post-war era, we had a bunch of recessions that were caused by inflation spiking up. Then the Fed tightens to push inflation down. You get a recession. But the last two cycles have been different. Yeah. The last two cycles have been a stock market bubble 
in the Nasdaq or in the subprime, that bursts and that triggers a recession. So I think the Fed should be more paranoid about asset prices overshooting than they appear to be. So when they raise rates and the response is that the equities go up, not down, I think that's worrying, not good. Have you put anything into the in bin at the Council on Foreign Relations recently? Are you writing? I mean, are you doing anything? (laughs) He's in trouble. The boss boss has arrived. Question. Richard Haas. (laughs) Joining us now, Richard Haas who uh, uh, has resurrected the Council on Foreign Relations to the value that is in the short time that we have with you this morning, Ambassador. Congratulations on the definitive must-read on Russia that you published a week ago. Thank you. Um, uh, Ms. Martin, uh, Professor Martin Kimberly was Martin's on with paper. us yeah, really good. from Barnard. Uh, tell us about that publication and why everyone listening, I'll put it out on social, mm-hmm. folks, why that document on Mr. Putin and Russia is so important. Uh, the reason is that she got right Essentially, you can argue about some of the details, the basic balance that we need a policy towards Russia at one and the same time that's both tougher in terms of making some of our military efforts in the region more robust. So Mr. Putin, shall we say, is not tempted, but also has some elements of reassurance diplomatically. So it's not looking for an across-the-board confrontation. It's not seeking to humiliate the Russians. So I thought diplomatically it got it about about right. Within the complexities of that longer-than-an-essay, 30-page document, is it enough of a brief for Secretary Tillerson to do something, or is he a Secretary of State on the out-and-out? Look, Mr. Tillerson's had a rough start. He uh, doesn't have any staff. He doesn't come into the job with a close personal relationship with the president. His resources have just been whacked. Uh, There's any number of independent decision-making centers in the White House. The table is not set for his being a successful Secretary of State. He's off to a slow start. Look, I I sincerely hope he he gains ground. We need a a capable, strong Secretary of State who, when he speaks, the rest of the world essentially takes him as speaking for the administration. To have a secretary of state who's not seen as authoritative uh, undermines, I think, uh, the chances of your foreign policy. Mick Mulvaney calls this budget that we see today a hard power budget, 29 percent cut to the State Department. What does Foggy Bottom look like with a cut like that? Well, it's, it's bad for Foggy Bottom. For the State Department, it's even worse for American national security. Uh, national security has always got to be a balance between hard and, uh, and soft power. And the entire State Department budget is 1% of the federal budget. To decimate that, uh, you know, it just it makes no sense. There's all sorts of things it does preventively. There's all sorts of investments it makes in stability around the world, which, by the way, if the stability disappears, the military interventions that are then required are incomparably more expensive. What's also missing from this budget, and I, I just don't understand it, why you have such a narrow budget that looks at, at various forms of spending and that doesn't even consider entitlements. At the end of the day, that's that's yeah. that's that's where you've got to cut, and you've got to protect defense, and you've got to protect domestic spending. That's our yeah. that's our future. I don't get it. Can, can you come by and stay a shorter time next time? <laughs> yes, I think we could work that out. I could have my agent speak to yours. Richard Haas, thank you so much, and I'll get out uh, Professor Martin's essay. Sebastian Malaby, thank you so much thank for the, root, the root entry of Ambassador Haas. <laughs> Sebastian Malaby has a book out on Alan Greenspan. I suggest you read it. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.
This is a great treat after uh, Chair Yellen's press conference yesterday. Joining us now, uh, Jason Furman. He is a former chairman of the president, President Obama's Council of Economic Advisors, now at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Dr. Furman, I thought it was extraordinary yesterday in the comments on GDP being noisy and the delicate ballet in almost an original theory. Is this a central bank trying to get out front of the debate, or like every other bank since time began, will they deal with rates after the fact? Which can it be? You know, Terry Yellen said the economy was doing nicely. That is a technical uh, term you learn in very advanced economics, (laughs) and I think it captures exactly um, where we are right now. Um, First quarter GDP is looking like it's going to come in a lot lower Mm -hmm. than where it was, um, you know, in the fourth quarter of last year. But, you know, first quarters have always been down. Right. Um, there's a lot of noise in the GDP data. I think you're always much better off placing about 80% of your weight on the jobs data, and the jobs data has been consistent and have been strong. What, is the jobs data correlated with the good news on GDP down the road? Can you make that linkage? There's a a little bit of a lag structure there, but it's it's more that the jobs numbers are just better measured than the GDP numbers. We did a study when I was at the Council of Economic Advisors. You can find it on our archive website. And what we found is if you just did the signal extraction problem, you have two noisy um, signals and you're trying to extract the signal from them, you would place most of your weight on the jobs numbers just by virtue of um, the better data that underlies them. A lot of these initial estimates of GDP are made yeah. up, and I'm not, you know, I'm not insulting the statisticians. They just don't have source data, and they have to yeah. pencil in an awful lot right. of guesses. Uh, Dr. Furman, take a memo. Now that you left the White House, you can insult the statisticians. Yeah. <laughs> you can now. <laughs> Jason, let me ask you about this skinny budget that we got. We can dig into the detail of it here in just a moment, so much as there, there is detail. But is it a good thing generally that we're returning to some semblance of regular order? You live through continuing resolution after continuing resolution. Of course, we see the debt ceiling coming back into effect uh, today. Uh, but can you applaud the fact that at least we're seeing this process play out the way that it had uh, before these last few years? I mean, this is, you know, this budget is extraordinarily skinny, and it's late. You look at every president from Carter through Obama in their first year in office by February 28th, they had delivered a budget blueprint, and their budget blueprint for every one of those previous presidents included five- or ten-year numbers, included an economic forecast, included a deficit path, included their major economic plans. None of that um, is in this budget. I mean, this is borderline, you know, incompetent way to to get done what they're trying to get done. Uh, when you look at what's being proposed here, this huge shift toward more security spending, we're talking about the diminishment of the, the State Department budget, the EPA uh, budget cuts to, to ag as well. Uh, what's the message this White House is, is, is trying to send? And are you optimistic here that um, this is going to get hashed out on, on the Hill when this thing moves to Capitol Hill? I mean, this was not a credible proposal. This is not something Republicans in Congress would want to do or Democrats in Congress would want to do. You know, go out and find out how many members of Congress of either party want to do an 18 percent cut to NIH. That's something that both parties have generally supported increasing um, in the past. That's, 
you know, if it happened, would be terrible. And in reality, it's more okay. of a phony budgeting. In the time that we've got today, Dr. Furman, and this is critical, forget about 28% or 18% cut or this or eliminating this or eliminate that. If you're sitting at CEA or OMB, Peter Orzag at OMB, just to pick a name, and somebody says to you, a politician says to you, flatline the budget so that you don't even have an inflation increase in a given department's budget, what does it do to that department? Just to use the phrase flatline, let alone the draconian drops we're talking about. Yeah, no, this is coming on top of cuts that we've done in recent years to the budget. No, I'm sure there's some fraud, waste, and abuse here and there, but you don't do um, cuts of this magnitude or even flatlining without getting rid of some stuff that um, the government does. And, and maybe that stuff is worth doing. Um, maybe that stuff is not worth doing. Um, I personally think it is worth doing medical research. It is worth doing climate science. It is worth investing um, in infrastructure, but flatlining you know, is is a cut, and it's coming on top of what goes. You know, many to, to, years in a row like what that. goes? Travel? What goes? People? What? What? Carpet? What? You I mean you've been in the crosshairs on this? If you flatline a given department, what goes? No, a lot of these departments, a lot of what they do is grants, and so they're just going to pass those costs on, maybe to money they were giving to states to help them with. Yeah. clean water. Things like the travel budget, there's just not enough money there, and it's been squeezed quite a lot. Um, in other departments, it's personnel. The EPA cut is, you know, a couple thousand EPA employees, people charged with, you know, enforcing the laws that, that Congress passed. Dr. Furman, not enough time today. Thank you so much. Jason Furman is a former chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. Uh, Willem Bauder, global chief economist at City. We threatened to have him back here after the election in the uh, in the Netherlands yesterday. Indeed, he joins us again. Uh, Willem, uh, Anne Hidalgo talking about this schism, this rural-urban uh, divide. Was that at play in the Netherlands yesterday? Uh, no, no, there is no rural-urban divide in the Netherlands because there's no countryside, right? It, uh, uh, in the Netherlands, we had a uh, very uh, sort of traditional uh, move of the voters over the last few weeks towards the center, uh, while both parties of government, the current coalition, uh, lost, and in fact the socialists, the social democrats, got annihilated. Um, uh, it's it's still clear that we're going to have um, a, uh, a center left, center right uh, coalition of four to five parties, and the populists, the hardline populists, the anti-Islam anti-immigrant, anti-EU, um, anti-globalization crowd, uh, while they won uh, relative to uh, uh, the last election, they're up to 20 seats out of 115 in the parliament, for, up from 15, uh, they really underperformed relative to expectations, where uh, they were shown uh, until quite recently uh, in the polls uh, to be uh, leading uh, the popular vote. And in fact, the, the Liberal Party, the all-style conservatives, um, while they lost eight seats, with 33 seats, they came out with 27% plus of the vote. The uh, hard 
right, so the, uh, the populists only got 13, one three uh, percent of the vote. So it is, in many ways, a, a, a personal punch in the nose for Mr. Wilders. Is, is this another referendum on polling? Uh, did the polls get it wrong this time? They got it wrong, but not as massively as in past polls. Uh, there is a, a track record in the Netherlands of the so-called Freedom Party, the, the populist, doing worse uh, in the actual vote than in, uh, in the polls. That was true here again. But yes, even on March 14th, the day before the elections, uh, the um, uh, vote of the, uh, of the traditional right, the liberals, was underrepresented by up to four seats. They were, I think, at 29 or there, or 27 even, and they ended up at 33. And uh, uh, the, uh, the populists were, you know, somewhere uh, in, the, in the low to mid-20s, while the 20 ended up with. So, yes, the polls, uh, not quite a black eye, but mm-hmm. a, a minor blue Shiner. Uh, Professor Bowder, does your Netherlands, do they have too many parties to make parliamentary government work? Well, uh, we have strict proportionality, uh, 150 seats in the lower house, the one that matters, single round of elections. So if you have two-thirds of a percent of the vote, you're in parliament, which is why we have an uh, animal lovers party, which currently <laughs> has five seats. Uh, we have a 50-plus, um, the old folks party, they have four seats now. And we have a, uh, a, a, a Turkish ethnic the community based offshoot of the Labour Party is three seats. So, yes, we have, uh, I think, 13 parties again in the parliament, one three, uh, which means that we always have a coalition government. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, since 1918, not a single time has a single party ever come close to getting <clears throat> a majority. So, coalitions are what the Netherlands is all about. We need a rather bigger coalition now than before. Two parties won't do, four. Probably. Uh, Willem, last question here. You mentioned coalition building. Do you see a path forward here, an easy path forward here uh, for the victors? Um, well, um, uh, there, are, uh, there are no two victors, right? I said of both course, of course. parts of government got uh, lost, yes, but I think it will take a few months. It always does in the Netherlands. Uh, the current cabinet will stay on uh, until a new cabinet is formed. Yes, we will get uh, probably... Uh, the Liberals, the VVD, with the current Prime Minister. We'll get the CDA, the Christian Democrats, uh, possibly the um, sort of centre-left uh, D66 or Liberal Democrats or pro-European. might right. even get the Socialists back in. Uh, Green left might make it. It is going to be a traditional uh, Dutch coalition hotspots. Uh, <clears throat> the one lesson I think that should not be forgotten, though, is that uh, the reason that the incumbent uh, the government leadership, uh, the, the VVD, did as well as they did, was that they adopted many right. of the positions and rhetoric of the populists. So, indirectly, the populists scored a bit interesting, of a victory. Interesting. This is great perspective. Professor Bader, we use on economics on his uh, Holland. Thank you so much, sir. Greatly appreciate it. Willem Bader, of course, uh, with Citigroup.
It's okay. It is March and there is snow on the ground, but how about we get out front of my book of the summer? Here it is. I hate this book. The Death of Expertise, Tom Nichols. You need to know the following. He's one of our leading Sovietologists. He's our leader on expertise analysis. Ian Bremmer loves this guy, but what you need to know is he's done better than good at the thing I'm terrible at, which is Jeopardy. So let's do a Jeopardy question right now. Who is Tom's worst nightmare? Tom Keene's worst nightmare is Tom Nichols, and he joins us now with Alan Ruskin of Deutsche Bank. Congratulations on my book of the summer, way too early. Short, brief, gorgeous. How did we lose our belief in experts like all the people we have on surveillance? Well, we didn't lose our faith in experts so much as we rejected it. We decided somehow as a society we didn't need it. We decided that— We don't need Alan Ruskin? We don't need Alan Ruskin. We don't need our doctors. We don't need engineers. We don't need diplomats. We don't need anybody who knows anything more than the average person because the average person thinks they know more than enough uh, to manage all of those complicated questions. This is anathema to you. It's anathema to Francine. It's anathema to me. It's anathema to Dr. Bremer and on and on. Are we talking about the death of expertise? Are we talking about a further divide in society, those that believe in a tradition expertise and those that have just given up? Well, there's always going to be expertise. If you cut your leg, you're always going to go to a doctor. Uh, If you get sued, you're going to go to a lawyer. The problem is taking the advice of experts beyond simply technical advice. Uh, And that's what's really dying. This notion that somehow people who know things about a lot of issues as opposed to the average layperson, uh, that's the thing that's dying. It's more like the, the death of the ideal of expertise among lay people in the United States, Europe, Canada. Mm-hmm. It seems to be becoming a global phenomenon, unfortunately. Right, but Tom, is this linked to populism? And when did this start happening? Is it because people are confusing experts or academics with the elite? There's no doubt about that. People, when people hear the word expert, they think elite, even though uh, those two groups aren't always the same. The people who advise the elites are not always the elites themselves. Uh, I think part of the problem is that there's a resentment in the information economy uh, between people who have done well in an information economy and people who feel left behind by it and are somewhat resentful about that, uh, even if that, that information economy really in the end ends up benefiting them. There's still nonetheless a certain amount of social resentment that leads to an almost automatic or reflexive rejection of expertise that, again, is very dangerous, not just to your health, but to the functioning of an effective republic or an effective democracy. Right, because because when you're an expert, it means you're the best in your field, or that was what it was meant to be. So what needs to happen? Is it a cycle? What needs to happen to go back to us trusting experts? I'm hoping that we can do that and return to trusting to experts without the kind of event that usually requires it, which is some kind of disaster, a war, a recession, a depression, a pandemic. Uh, As I often say, people are very willing to question their doctors and reject medical expertise until their fever hits about 102 and suddenly doctors are okay again. Uh, I'm hoping that we can get back to a better relationship between experts and lay people before something like that has to happen. You beautifully frame this between the distribution and certitude of a Google search, like I could search for Alan Ruskin's world and go, what do I do about the dollar? And I'll pretend I know more than Alan Ruskin, which is not the case. And then you nail it in your book. This is from um, the spy who came in from the cold. I saw Tinker Taylor Soldier spy last night for the fifth time. I reserve the right to be ignorant 
That's a surveillance way of a life. No, I'm kidding. I reserve the right to be ignorant. That's the Western way of life. That really sums it up from another time and place. It does. That, that came all the way back from 1965, and yet it's something that people adhere to almost right. now as a virtue. Do you uh, see this on Wall Street? Do you see this? I mean, guys like you, Wall Center, everything that David Folkert's Landau has built at Deutsche Bank seems to be crumbling because we don't need Alan Ruskin or Dominique Constum anymore, do we? In the political sphere, I'd say that. I'd, uh, I think in the currency world, unfortunately, people have been quite skeptical of currency forecasting for quite some time, in a sense. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think to the point that was expressed earlier, the, the big question is, is this a cycle, really? You know, do we have a, a sense here that this is going to eventually come full circle and we're going to come back You've to... You've been an uh, arch critic of Trump economics, Trump political theory and such. What do you observe in seven weeks? And in, in, are you confirmed or is it advantageous to have the uproar in Washington that we have? I don't think it's advantageous at all. And I, I think it's important to point out, I started writing the book long before Donald Trump came on the scene. Uh, I think that the president and his campaign caught this wave rather than creating it. They surfed it rather than generating it. Uh, but they've certainly encouraged it just as the Brexiteers did in Britain mm -hmm. uh, and other, other parts of the world. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of Global Connections, Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.